Hey everybody, we are back with an all new episode of Working It Out, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. Um, if you haven't heard the news, I am doing outdoor shows. Uh, they're safely distanced outdoor shows. If you're in New England, they're in Connecticut and Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and uh, they're safe, they're fun. It's all the new material that you've been listening to me work on on this podcast, but all together uh, for, uh, what's gonna become the old man and the pool and currently is called Working It Outside. Um, so you can find out about that at burbigs.com as well as uh, my Cape Cod Melody Tent show in August and my and my fall tour, which is rescheduled from spring 2020. Uh, but today on the show, we have a hilarious comic from, from the UK uh, named Nish Kumar. Nish Kumar is someone I met from just sort of following each other on Twitter over the years. And then he just put out a comedy album, which is called, it's a double album called It's In Your Nature to Destroy Yourselves, part one and part two. And I listened to this and I just thought, this guy is hilarious. It's it's available on all the, the audio uh, platforms. I highly recommend it. We have a great, great conversation about the relationship between personal stories and the structure of, of shows and shows in Britain and shows in America. And uh, I hope you enjoy my chat with the very funny Nish Kumar. I've been listening to your album, It's In Your Nature to Destroy Yourselves, part one and part two. Double, and double albums. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Oh, so thanks, good. man. <laughs> I, I don't think I've laughed that hard at a comedy album in so long. Oh, and thanks, it's, But it's interesting because some of it's recorded in 16. Yeah. And you're talking about current events that are like, in our rearview mirror in such a big way, but they're actually still funny, regardless of them being a capsule, a time capsule. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, when we came to release them, I sort of, my girlfriend's brother is basically, is a professional sound recordist. And so in 2016, kind of on a whim, I just asked him to record the audio of the London gig that I did when I was touring that year. And it, I, I don't know what I had planned to do with it, but I then when I came to do the next tour, like in 2019, I got him to record it again. And then I sort of had these like two and they're also like double album length. Like this is yeah. really, this is I'm really in my like progressive rock era. Yes, yes. <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> or it's like it's the sadder version of it is it's like when Outcast did the two double albums, but I don't have a friend. So I just yes, have to do yes. two. <laughs> I just yes. had to do two albums well, myself. No, it's so funny because I, I I did have a sense when I after I listened to them like like Nish is very uh, prolific. <laughs> My God, he's got a lot of material. But you, but you know, part of it is testament to something that most of my listeners are are American and so or Canadian, and uh, I have a few UK listeners, but in Australia, but not not as many. People don't realize, because I do these shows like Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, the new one, and they're these sort of like hour to hour and a half long shows that have an arc of some kind and that kind of thing. And in America, comedy audiences, some comedy audiences don't know what to make of it. They're yeah. just like, is he a solo performer? Is he? Is it a one-person play? Is it stand-up <laughs> comedy? And in England, it's that's what every comic does. I, I Listen, I had the experience of watching my girlfriend's boyfriend at the Soho Theatre with about 20 other British comedians. And the first thing everyone said afterwards was like, that was like an Edinburgh show. Like that was like, <laughs> yeah. a, that was like watching a British, it, 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 there's a part of you that's like, first of all, why have we never heard of this British comedian? And why, <laughs> why is he why doing it with an- Why have we never heard of this British comedian? And why is he doing it in an American accent? What's his game, this What is this guy up to? <laughs> Yeah, in America, I'm constantly asked the question, like, do you consider yourself a comedian? I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is what, in the, the, the rest in the rest of the world, this is what people do. It's a very accepted form of stand-up comedy in the UK and Australia, particularly. Like, it's, you know, the shows that you're doing are, are, would be 
I mean, we call them Edinburgh shows because like the convention here is that comedians write a show over the year and then they take it to Edinburgh for the Fringe Festival in August and you do them and you lose a load of money and you gain a load of weight and you uh, drastically reduce <laughs> your life expectancy. And occasionally... Wow, uh, that seems yeah. like a bad deal. <laughs> Listen, you must read the small print. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You must I, read oh the my small gosh. print. Oh my Michael. God, I didn't see the part that says lower life expectancy. <laughs> Why would they put that in two-point font? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to stick that in bold. But it's that sort of the convention and one of the types of hour show that everybody does. And everybody does a new hour every year at the Fringe. And some of the shows are like stand up, like they're called like Vegetable. And it's an hour of stand up that has nothing to do with vegetables, but they just had sure. to name it for something for the brochure. And then there well, are... N- Nanette, Nanette is a perfect yeah, yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> Hannah Gadsby show is, have, has nothing to do with really Nanette. And yeah, and then she... And what's great about that is she sort of addresses how that came to happen and talks about the process yeah. of naming a show and stuff in yeah. that show. And, like, then there is a lot of shows in Edinburgh that are, you know, called something very specific and it can be a single story, but you hang lots of jokes off the back of it. And so we were all, like, obviously fascinated about this idea that you were doing something that we would really recognise in the UK and Australia as being an hour-long one-person comedy show. Yeah, I was, I was, I, I have so much fun between the Soho Theater and Leicester Square Theater. Whenever I come to London, I, yeah. I have a phenomenal experience. And I want to, I want to branch out. I mean, what was interesting is when I was listening to your album, I couldn't help but think like, how are the audiences in London compared to uh, the rest of the UK? Because in America, the cliche that people say to me all the time, but it's actually incorrect, is they go like. I bet, you know, that plays great in New York, but if you go to Cincinnati or whatever, yeah, I'm like, yeah. no, no, Cincinnati's great. <laughs> I mean, you know, Dayton, Ohio's great. Boise's great. Like, actually, like, seeing the rest of America is actually quite excellent. Yeah. Uh, and it, But is how is how does uh, greater UK uh, uh, play compared to London for oh, audiences? Well, it's, it's, it's the same sort of thing. Like, people talk a lot about how there's, like, really different audiences in different parts of the country, but... You know, especially if you're like doing a touring show, the people that come and see me in Liverpool or Manchester, right, are kind of the same people as who comes to see me in London. That's right. Like it, there's, it's there's a lot right. of. Like, if I go to if I go to Fayetteville, Arkansas, I'm going to get the public radio listeners <laughs> in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If I play New York, I get the public radio <laughs> listeners in New York. I mean, it's the same thing. <laughs> I de- I really think that. Because people always ask you their their first question. The first question is always, how, "How often do you get heckled?" That's always the first question. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is like, I don't. If somebody tells me I'm a surgeon, I'm not like, "Did you lose anyone on the table today?" You know, like it's so <laughs> weird that the first question is always, "Yes, yes." <laughs> when did you fail? <laughs> when did you fail? Tell me all about it. <laughs> Use oh car salesman are you? Ah, lean year was it? Willie yes. Loman. Anything there? Like it's so funny. It's such a strange impulse that people have. But then the second thing is always like, oh, it must be really hard to play. And, you know, especially with the kind of material that I've been doing about Brexit and the sort of political material. When I went out on tour in 20, particularly in 2019, lots of journalists would say, I bet you're not going, looking forward to going to, you know, X town that voted heavily to leave. And I yeah. was kind of like, I don't know what that's going to be like politically. And then I spoke to Stuart Lee, the uh, mm-hmm. a- the angry grandfather of all British UK alternative <laughs> stand-ups. Who's brilliant. I <laughs> love Stuart He's an amazing Lee. comedian. And, he, yeah. and I spoke to him beforehand and I was like, I don't know what it's going to be like. And he had been touring. He was touring before that. And he said, I pretty much guarantee you, you will have most of your best gigs in cities where the vote was to leave the European Union. Yeah. Because yeah. he said the people that come and see you are the same, by and large, the same people that come and see him. And he said sure. they are, they're they're starved or they feel embattled. And so if they come and hear opinions that they agree with, they're likely to give you. And he was totally right. Like he was completely correct. Yeah, it's interesting because like I, um, you have this, on the part one of the of the double album, 
you have this hilarious story about a heckler. <laughs> it's laughing thinking about the heckler who raises his hand yeah, politely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I just love that detail. The, the heckler is so polite. And he raises his hand and he says, I find your language to be reductive and problematic. Did you call on him? Yeah, I did. Because I, it's actually something that's happened to me a couple of times in like tour shows or work in progress shows where he will, you know, like a, a man and men and women are both just like, you look out into the audience and see a hand raised. Sure. And you're just like, I kind of, I, if somebody heckles me, I'm obviously yeah. like, fuck you. But if someone yeah. puts their hand up, I'm like, you started a dialogue, friend. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> I mean, I might dismiss it. I might say, actually, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm presenting something here, but maybe we can talk later. But <laughs> it's, it's but, one of those things where if somebody has their hand up, you know, you know how when you look at somebody and the longer you do comedy, you immediately get a sense from somebody's body language if they're going to be trouble. Like it, you sort of develop, especially oh, when you yeah, do yeah, yeah. like club comedy. You can like you can you can you can like feel when somebody's going to be difficult. And if somebody engages you in the audience, you, it doesn't matter what they're saying. You can tell from the tone of their voice whether they're yeah. going to be trouble or not. And the person raising their hand, by and large, is not a problem. And you know that it's going to be fun if you pursue the interaction. Yeah, I mean it's. I've had so many over the years. I remember one time I I was doing this elaborate George Bush, George W. Bush analogy. I call him Wiffleball Tony. It's my first album, <laughs> Two Drink Mike. And and uh, and someone in the audience, this is in Atlantic City, someone in the darkness, as you know, in the, when you perform in theaters, you're often like looking into darkness. The audience is, dar- is nothing. And they're just sounds, you know. And someone goes, you didn't die since 9-11 and but i couldn't i couldn't hear the full sentence all i heard was die right so i just hear die <laughs> die die and i'm like oh oh no i think i might die like what if this person has a gun am i about to get shot like i literally thought about walking off the stage and then, uh, and then I, you know, I just kept going and, the, you know, I go, sorry, sir, I can't hear you that well. And, and then my brother explained to me later, he was like, oh, he said, you, you didn't die since 9-11. What does that mean? Well, it was a big, uh, it was a big thing that people who were pro George W. Bush in the early 2000s. I, I'm so sorry. For one second, I thought you were going to be like, it was a big thing where two planes were flown into the World Trade <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh, I don't know if this made news in London, but there are these two planes. It was like, how do went I went straight into the goddamn World Trade Center, and uh, we've been talking about it ever since. Um, I explained the full. I explained the full story. It's twenty five minutes long. Um, no, it's very. No, it was. Uh, no, it was it was it was this weird. Uh, it was a honestly, it was the scariest heckle yeah. I've ever received because I was like, a the topic is volatile, yeah, sure, and b uh, what I'm hearing is die, and so <laughs> I'm thinking this this might end badly. But what's interesting is you have a moment on your album where right around the leave vote. Uh, if if the listeners don't know where the uh, where the UK voted, the all the residents yeah. of the United Kingdom voted to leave the European Union. Yeah, um, and on the heels of that, you went on stage at the Comedy Store in London that and night. Had a very, yeah, that night had a very yeah. passionate, passionate uh, set, and someone shouted kind of an old school racist trope, which was go. go can, yeah. I want to say go home. It was you can go home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like old school. 1970s British racism. It's like you look into the darkness and expect to see somebody in flares. <laughs> <laughs> like Disco Stew from The Simpsons, like something like yes. that. Yes. <laughs> it was, yeah, and it was on the night and it was so, it all felt so sort of febrile and like very tense and like the, uh, you know, the security staff had to like bundle me into this back room because the guy had stayed to have a further conversation. Oh, wow. I didn't know this. So, and James Acaster, who's a great British comedian and a friend of mine, was around the corner doing a gig. And he and I had like arranged 
to go for a pint between shows. We were both doing like an yeah. early set and then a late set. And we were going to go for a drink between shows. And he got to the comedy store. And when he got to the comedy store, he was like, he was, he, he was waiting for me. And he went up to the security, security guard and went, have you seen Nish? And the security guard was like, well, you better come with me. <laughs> Oh, and they were like oh my gosh. holding me. They had me oh like in a back room to stop this guy from beating the shit out of me. Were you were you genuinely afraid? I was kind of, you know, there's that weird thing where the adrenaline you forget who you are and what mm. you are like at fighting when you're on stage. <laughs> you know, like there's the because the adrenaline is like. <laughs> <laughs> the adrenaline is just coursing through your body. And so yes. in your, in, yes. like in my head, I am, you know, standing there and I'm Terry Crews. Like in my head, yeah, that's, that's what right. the audience is seeing. What the audience is actually seeing is it looks like a witch has put a terrible hex on Jason Manzoukas. <laughs> and like, that's what the audience is really seeing. Um, wow. And so it was like one of those things where I wasn't afraid. I was like, I was so angry. And like the blood yeah. was just, that blood was pounding in my head and I was so furious and it was good that they put me in that back room and just diffused the situation because I don't think, I think if I'd seen that guy, I would have started a fight that he would have ended quite quickly, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. That's so scary. I mean, I've had a couple things like that over the years. It's so scary. Do you... You've spent time in America, and you you were you know you live and grew up in England. Yeah. What? How would you compare the racism in the different places? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I feel like, like Americans have this conversation all the time because we we feel I think we feel like our racism is unique to our country, but it, it's not. It's it's just a different. I would say it's a different version of it. It's so interesting, right? I mean. Because there's so there's so much there's so much complicated reckoning with history that the two countries are doing, and one of the problems that we have in this country is the fact that in terms of like starting a conversation about the historic roots of British racism, a lot of the pr problems we have is that our the worst sort of crimes of our racism were happened abroad. Like we didn't right. do a lot of the stuff. The slavery plantations right. that were run by British people were not in Britain. The in British, India and Africa yeah, and it, yeah. all over and, the world. You know, the, yeah. the British Empire ran India, you know, and committed yeah. a string of massacres in Kenya and India. And so we definitely tell ourselves, the national story in this country tells us that Britain is not a racist country and we're not like America. And so I don't know who's in a better position because I, I think we both probably feel that each other is in the better position because I feel like in America at least there is a more open dialogue about race and racism, even if the dialogue is horrible. Whereas in yeah. Britain, the struggle is to start the conversation. We just had something happen in this country where the government basically found, like has written a report to, to officially rubber stamp Britain as not being racist. And they really? got it, yeah, they got it written by a bunch of people who had already are, are on record as saying, look, Britain's not a racist country. And they've written yeah. a report, like, it's like me writing a report into the size and shape of my own penis and coming away <laughs> going, it is absolutely pristine. Yeah, yeah, it's phenomenal. And and it's like, it's classic British. Yeah. I would say that our racism versus your racism is a bit like the differences between our two versions of The Office. Like, our racism <laughs> is, like, quiet and subtle and your racism has a huge budget and a big cast of characters. Oh my gosh. And, and our racism, is all, it's all about the little looks. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Stepping away from my conversation with Nish Kumar to send a shout out to Helix Mattresses. Oh man, I love Helix Mattresses. This is, so we have to do ads for the show, but then... Every once in a while, you know, a product comes along like Helix mattresses and you just go like, oh, this is great. I just get to talk about mattresses for a minute and then we go back to the show. Unbelievable. It's the most uh, it's the most comfortable mattress I've ever used. It's uh, I mean, it was awarded number one best overall mattress pick in 2020 by GQ and Wired magazine. 
This was the shocker. Number one best overall mattress pick in Mike Birbiglia magazine. MB magazine. Yeah. You might not even know about that magazine, but it's huge. They have free shipping and a 10-year warranty. You can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash burbigs. And now, back to the show. You and I have this thing in common in terms of feedback, which is to say that you get heckled sometimes. Yeah. And in, in this album, you talk about getting heckled very politely. Yeah. And you reconsidered a joke. So, like, you said a joke that was about white people. And yeah. then someone said, actually, I object to that. And uh, and you said, okay, I'll change it to rich, to rich white men. <laughs> and then that's what the joke is. And it's a very funny joke. But it actually made me think, like, like, I think that's a very level-headed approach to comedy, and I I have that too. Like, I take yeah. in a ton of feedback. I read a lot of like, comments in, on Instagram. I, I read emails that come to working it out, pod at Gmail. Like, I will consider, I'm curious what your policy is, because I will consider any complaint, but yeah. it doesn't mean that I'll change it yeah. just because there is a complaint. Yeah, and I think it's strange. I think some of the conversations that people have had around offence in comedy. I mean, I think, like, Thank God for Jokes was a great special about this exact issue and this exact conversation. But one of the things that I've always found interesting about people who are like, you know, people should, comedians should be able to say whatever they want. You're like, yeah, we, we do and we can. But we also workshop material. And yes. we workshop that based on audience feedback. So if somebody, yes. you know, if a joke is, doesn't get a laugh from people, I'm probably going to drop it. And if there, yeah. there are some things where it doesn't get a laugh from an audience, I think, oh, you know, how can I, I do think that there is something funny here. Can we, can I work through it? Can I, you know, and you change the wording and you, so I, to me, if somebody says, hey, I didn't like that joke because of this reason, I, if, to me, it's part of the same process of like yeah. improving material. So if somebody says, I don't, I'm offended by the joke for this reason, what, I don't see any harm in going, oh, that's interesting. And then if I, th if I agree, if if I come to agree with them, I kind of go, oh, yeah, I will change that joke. It's all part of the process of working on and improving your material, I would have thought. Oh, this is just a process question. When I was listening to the album, I was like, I was like, Nish is so prolific. What uh, do you do like morning pages or like how do you how do you work from the blank page? I mean, I can't sit down and like write word for word stand up because when I do that, it turns into a subpar undergraduate essay. <laughs> my, st <laughs> my style of comedy yeah. very quickly devolves into a very poor undergrad essay. Yeah, so I get you. It, uh, it, the best thing for me is to have like three ideas of like jokes yeah. that I will sort of make like hastily scribbled notes that look like the sort of Zodiac killers like planned for the evening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have something like that. And yeah. then as quickly as possible, I will go on stage and try it out and even try some version of it. And I will, this, this new material nights in London and I will go on stage with like three ideas and try and bounce between them and see what I can get to. And then I will record that and then listen back to it. That's what this podcast came out of because yeah. I'm similar. Like I write drafts of things, but like really like the final edits occur with an audience. Yeah. And so this podcast is an attempt to, okay, well, we can't perform in front of audiences, so I'm just going to call my comedian friends and we'll we'll kick jokes back and forth. But I find that so interesting with your work. Like, so, because uh, to me, something like My Girlfriend's Boyfriend feels like such a whole piece. In my head, as somebody watching that show, it feels like you've had this, like, grand idea for a story and then you have you know, mapped it out like a three act structure script thing. And then you were trying to fill that with jokes. But do you, is it more piecemeal in the way that you come up with it? So it's, it's both of the things simultaneously. Right, so like, right, right. so for example, I'm doing free writes like a few days a week where I write like just whatever's in my head. Yeah. And then I'll sort of underline jokes and then I'll create like note cards of jokes. Yeah. And then I'll ta be talking with my director, Seth Barish about like, 
what could this show with these jokes and these stories be about? Right. And then over time, we sculpt those things together. And I, it's just funny is I workshop them in comedy clubs and I workshop them in theaters because I want, I want the show to hold up as a series of jokes and I want it also to hold up as a piece of theater. Right, right, right. That's such a hard, like, that must be such a hard balancing act to get both of those things to, because ultimately my shows, much as I've talked about the grand British model of Edinburgh <laughs> show, my shows ultimately, it's like, I'm, you know, that picture of Charlie Day from Always Sunny where he's gone, like, that's what I end up with. I've got all these fragments of ideas and routines. And then at the very end, I like try and put it together in a way that feels like it makes sense. Like it has a kind of like flow and order to it and it has a structure to it. But I'm not like, there's no grand narrative in any of the shows that I've done. There's no story that I'm telling. And so yeah. I'm always, I'm, and it's the, it's one of the things that people do in comedy that I'm most fascinated about because I feel like I can't do it. And I don't feel like I would be able to tell a story like over an hour. And it, it, I'm always interested in knowing where the like root of all of those ideas comes in. Well, like when I work on my shows with Seth, like we always work backwards from a single event. So like with Sleepwalk With Me, it's like I jumped through a window. Yeah. With my girlfriend's boyfriend, it was, I was in this car accident yeah. with a drunk driver, et cetera. And then we build backwards for, from like, well, what would make that final story have the maximum impact? So like right. in the case of like your part one of your album, like the guy heckling you and saying like, go home. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Which is, I can't even like paraphrase your heckler and not feel weird about it. I can't, I'm not, I don't like this role playing. I don't want to be the racist role player in the podcast. I, like, I think that that speaks very, very well of you. <laughs> I think the fact that you have not just slipped comfortably into that role speaks Go home. extremely Where? well of you. Where do you think I live? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, so, so the go home moment, like if I were working with Seth, it would be like, okay, so we take that go home story and we'd probably include some of the stuff you were saying about how they put you in a, a room and they made sure no one came back and all that stuff. Like that would end up being the final story of the show. Right, right, and right. It, then we would sort of calculate how do we build backwards so that everything in the show is ultimately, without the audience realizing it, leading to the moment of your reckoning with this mean racist heckler. Right, sure, sure, sure. Okay, that makes sense to me. So this is a thing we do in a show called The Slow Round, and it's sort of just based on memories and things. And do you have a memory from childhood that it's not a story per se, but it's just like a, a thing you think about sometimes, like a memory on a loop? Yeah, I kind of, I really remember that when I started, and I, this memory has been around, has been circling around my head a lot recently because I, when I moved house, I found this thing that I've had. I think it's the object I've had the longest in my life. Uh, and it's the top of a. I actually, I actually keep it on my desk. It's the top of a Batman pen uh, from when I was a kid, like from the oh. Tim Burton Batman pen. It's so. It's wow. probably like that's probably nineteen eighty nine. So it's probably that's like, a long time to keep an item. Yeah, and my dad bought it for me because uh, my mum, my mum was like in hospital for a bit, like in for like a fairly normal health thing but she was like in hospital for a bit when I started school and my dad had to take me to school and I just remember very early saying to my dad like I had somehow misunderstood school like I thought that it was like when you buy a car and you have like a trial period with it and so for like the first couple of days of school I after that I said to my dad like cool I don't think I'll be going back <laughs> I said I I had like totally misunderstood what school I love that. was. I, I so thought, love that. I thought that it was like something my parents were sending me to for a few days. And if I wow. liked it, I could stay on there. And after the first couple of days, I was like, I don't think, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. I think I'm good with school. I think I'm good with school. Yeah. I feel like I got what I needed and I'm good. I'm just going to use this Batman pencil top 
and I'll be on my way. So the Batman pencil top was one of a string of bribes my father got for me. Because my mum, I guess like my mum would just have been more used to like, because my you know my dad was away with work a lot of the time yeah and my mum was the one who was like more used to like getting us to go to school and like getting us sorry getting us to go to like play group and getting us to do things we did well and my dad just like in retrospect clearly just had no idea how to convince this child that he had to go to school and so just started buying me gifts at the end of the day (laughs) wow did you ever have a teacher in that period of time who gave you confidence. Like I remember I had a couple teachers who like fostered my creativity and I I, like remember it to this day. Yeah, I think about that a a lot actually. I mean, when I was in, when I was in high school, I've translated it for the American audience. We call it secondary school. Nice work, I've translated it to high school. I just want you all to know that. Le lycée. Yeah, le (laughs) lycée. Well, no, after Brexit, it's the old learning shop. We've done away with all our European terminology, Michael. Oh, gosh. The old learning shop. Do you want to have a rendezvous? No, I want a fucking meet-up, you prick. That's really funny. It's I, like, had a teacher who, when I was in secondary school, just found this, like, government scheme that meant that, like, kids could go and see theatre shows. And so we would just get, like, dirt cheap theatre shows to go to all these, like, mad West End theatres that are all, like, 150 years old. and No kidding. Yeah, and they, and and also, like... That's a of, huge seminal moment. That happened when you were a teenager? Yeah, it was absolutely massive. You start yeah. going and seeing these plays. You know, and, like, I saw, like... Like, I saw Ian Holm in The Homecoming, which is a really fucked up Harold Pinter play. And it's really intense. And just all these, like, 16-year-olds going, I don't know what's going on. I went to see Sweeney Todd not knowing it was a musical. And if you don't know that it's a musical, that's a surprise. And if you don't know it's a musical... (laughs) If you don't know if it's it's a musical about a barber who murders people by slitting their throats... That is a really delightful surprise as well. Like those are really enjoyable surprises. Can I get, let me ask you this. The, um, do you recall growing up when you were ever an inauthentic version of yourself? Like it was someone who you were along the way. Yeah. All the time. Most of, I would say like quite a lot of my teenage years. Yeah. And quite a lot of my, like when I was in my twenties, there was a lot of me kind of trying on, uh, there was a lot of me like trying on a few different personalities and like really not quite, never really quite making it work. Like when I watch, uh, when I watch the, one of the newer Spider-Man films and he's got his friend Ned, whose ambition is to be the guy in the chair, like his tech sidekick. I was like, that's exactly what I was like at secondary school. <laughs> Wait, can you describe what that character is like? I don't know the character. His whole ambition, and he keeps using the phrase, he's like, I just want to be the guy in the chair. Who's like, when he fight, he because he finds out that Peter Parker is Spider-Man quite early in the film. Okay. And yeah. then he says, hey, can I be your guy in the chair? And he's yeah. like, what does that mean? And he's like, you know, in the action movies, the guy, there's the main yeah. guy, but then there's also the guy in the chair. And that's like, what you wanted to be? <laughs> the guy in the chair? That's ridiculous. I related to that so hard. Like I That's such my, an unambitious <laughs> aspiration for someone who ended up being a well-known stand-up <laughs> comedian who stands on stage and speaks through a microphone. It was, <laughs> I was always like, maybe I could be the funny sidekick of the hero. Wow. <laughs> and then but then when does the transformation happen? When when do you go from the guy in the chair to the guy? I mean, I think I think all I realized was like that you can that I think maybe I watched like a lot of action films where like the side there's like a funny sidekick. And then when you start seeing stand-up comedy, you're like, oh, the person who's I mean, literally the funny sidekick. Like Chris Rock was in Lethal Weapon 3. Oh, right. And then literally when you start seeing stand-up comedy, you're like, he's still, it's not like when he's doing this stand-up thing, when he's doing that, he's not like some great kind of alpha hero. He's still a a sort of skinny, annoying dude 
with a right. shrill voice. And so I think like doing stand up comedy recontextualized a lot of the qualities that I thought would have made me a good sidekick. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. So it's like you're the you still are the sidekick, but you're the sidekick who's given a one hour block of time to say his soliloquy. <laughs> that's how I feel. Constantly. That's a good title for your for for your next album, which is the sidekick soliloquy. <laughs> Stepping away from my conversation with Nish Kumar to send a shout out to Green Chef, the first USDA certified organic meal kit company with clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. Perfect timing for me in the pandemic because you know for early in the pandemic i was just like well i should be i should be very unhealthy and uh i should let my body uh fall apart from the inside and i ate very unhealthy things and now i'm eating very healthy things which is why green chef is perfect for me and my family uh green chef makes it uh eating well easy and affordable with plans to fit every lifestyle, whether you are keto or paleo or vegan or vegetarian like my wife, Jen, or just looking to eat healthier. There's a range of recipes to suit any diet or preference. Go to greenchef.com slash burbigs and use code 90burbigs to get $90 off, including free shipping. Again, that's greenchef.com slash 90burbigs, code 90burbigs to get $90 off, including free shipping. And now back to the show. So we work out material on the show, and I have a few jokes. Do you have any jokes that you want to run by me? I do have some, yeah, yeah. I've got my... I could start if it's helpful. Yeah, go for it. Let me uh, decipher the weird shit I've written in this book. This is something uh, that I'm trying to... You know, my new show is called Old Man in the Pool, and it's all about hitting middle age and mortality. And so I was doing a lot of free writes on that. And so I wrote this thing about how um, I recently saw a, 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 a seagull uh, at the ocean and it was, uh, it was flying in the air and it had a, a fish in its mouth that was alive. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that's a hell of a way to go out for that fish. Talk, talk about an exciting final five minutes. Like your whole life, you're swimming through the water, which you thought was the world. And then one day you're flying through the air, which you didn't know existed at 100 miles an hour. And then you're eaten alive, which was bound to happen anyway. In other words, I don't want to die. But if I'm going to die, I wouldn't mind doing it the first time I parasail. And then the final thing I wrote down is what's amazing to me is that the fish... Didn't think the bird was his problem. <laughs> he was afraid of bigger fish. As long as he's thinking, like, as long as I don't get eaten by that swordfish, I should be good. And then one day he's 500 feet in the air and he's like, never mind. And that's like all of us, right? Like, we're all like, I wonder what color we should paint the kitchen. And then one day the building collapses and we're like, never mind. <laughs> Or like one day Zeus's hand just comes through the ceiling and starts shaking you. <laughs> That's right, or or an asteroid or whatever the hell it is. I mean, it's just out. It's 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 that. Oh right, no, that's you're right. That's a better analogy in like, some I'm ways. Just, what's the like? Because human it's from version? a different. It's from a. Di it's a different dimension. <laughs> well, yeah, or like I was thinking, even like it's sort of like parasailing on ecstasy or something. <laughs> You know what I mean? Because it's not just parasailing, because it's less voluntary and it's more trippy. <laughs> but the Zeus's hand one is good too. I think that's a good just point. Just some like, because the idea that it was a world, like the fish genuinely didn't know that something existed above the waterline. And like, yes. you find out not only is there a whole other world you didn't know existed, there are creatures you didn't know existed. And you find this out five minutes before you're bitten to death by one of them. <laughs> well, what if it's like, what if it's like you're you're going along and you're thinking, I hope I don't get fired at work, and then like us, and then you get swapped up by a supernova and thrown into the sun. 
<laughs> You're like, oh, that was my problem, actually. <laughs> um, so tell me what's in tell me what's in your notebook right now. I there's something that I don't even know. This like an analogy that I don't even know exists. If this is something that people universally recognize, but I feel like sometimes I am like. I want to nail something the way Australians nailed brunch. <laughs> and I just, I am obsessed with this idea that somebody in Australia one day was like, okay, brunch. <laughs> Wait, did Australians come up with brunch? I don't think they came up with it. It just feels like wherever I go in the world, like a lot of the best brunch and coffee places, like wow. are, are Australian. And I just love the idea that a whole country would... Just like it feels like one day they just woke up and were like, you know what? We're just going to devote all our energy into brunch. Yeah. And just getting it right. And I like that's the kind of like focus that I'm yeah. trying to bring to something. Like I just want to pick one thing and yeah. be good at it. Because like I'm, yeah. I'm also like I've just come to this point now where like I feel like I've got I'm 35 and I've got a few more years to improve my personality. Otherwise, right, there's right, just right, right. no point. And like, I've come to like, I've given up on the idea of like, be like being in love with myself, like loving myself ever. And sure. I realise that now I'm in an, I'm basically in an unhappy marriage with myself. That's funny. Where we've both just settled for each other. And, you know, we're just, we're going along. And to be quite frank, the sex has dried up. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if it's like, I wonder if it's like the brunch thing is funny, but I wonder if it's like, what are your hobbies? Like, what are your, what are your, like, do you have hobbies? No, I mean, all I do is I do comedy. I watch yeah. television and I yeah. play the guitar. And so it's like, I don't know which one, like, I'm not going to be Jimi Hendrix. Yes. So your hobbies, you're saying you're like ho sort of hobbyless, but I feel like it's almost like one, one way the joke might go is like, like, you know, you play guitar. Yeah. Like, you play a little bit of guitar, but, like, what if you just, like, figured out how to do, like, a Bach, you know, solo <laughs> on, like, an acoustic guitar, and then when you're at a party, people are like, what do you like to do as a hobby? You're like, well, I play a little guitar. It's like, oh, really? What kind of thing? Actually, I have it right here. You pull out like a travel guitar and you're like, and it's like the one thing you do. And then people are like, what, what's Nish like? And it's like, Nish does Bach guitar solos. And everyone's like, enough said. <laughs> I know you mean though, because I I completely relate. I have no hobbies. Yeah. I do nothing but comedy, and I would love to have one thing that I did that people go, "Oh, that's neat." Yeah, and I that's I think about that with Australia all the time because they like they they have to operate as a country. They have some sports teams that are excellent, yeah. and then on the side they were just like, "I guess we're just going to be the brunch people. That's we're hilarious. just going to like we're going to really just hammer this concept of brunch." It's the same thing when you go to like an outdoor music festival and you're like, you know, there's the guy with the snake. <laughs> like it's his identity. You know, he's got this huge python around his neck or whatever. And it's like you and me, we need our snake, but we don't know what it is yet. <laughs> we, need, we need our snake is a very funny... I like We Need Our Snake. Maybe that could be part of the bit. I mean, it's an interesting theme, this idea that you can't sort of, <laughs> you can't sort of self-proclaim like an identity uh, that easily or like a, like you can't make up your own nickname. Like when Hannah Gadsby was on th this show, she goes, uh, she goes, you're Mickey B the story guy. And I was like, that's pretty good. Mickey B the story guy. Mickey B, the story guy, is, is really good. But you can't go around saying, I'm Mickey B, the story guy. You need someone else to say it about you. Yeah, and then yeah. you go, that's what people are saying. <laughs> I'm hearing a lot of buzz that Mickey B is the story guy. There's a lot of there's a lot of tattle around the water cooler. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mickey B might be the story guy. You might not want to bring that one up yourself. 
but you can bring a snake. <laughs> I also have this thing that I want to talk about. Again, I don't know how relatable this is for people, but I feel like that in my family, there is like a membrane through which information can't pass between generations. Like mm. there's an accepted thing that like my brothers, my cousins and me will all share information that is not to be passed upwards or downwards. Oh, that's that we interesting. don't tell our parents or we don't tell like, the, you know, people's kids and nieces and nephews and stuff. Yeah. And it's like this semi-permeable membrane. And in order for something to pass through the membrane, like more than one of you, like a few of you have to agree that that's what's going to happen. And like, it's like, we're so obsessed with, and I don't know whether it's an Asian family thing. It's something I've talked to a couple of my friends who are Asian have exactly the same thing. We like control the flow of information upwards on our family tree. And like, yeah. it is, it is quite extraordinary. And the kind of, the only thing that I have that is a sort of joke for it at the moment is it's extraordinary. The things that I have, the secrets that we have kept from our parents are insane. I ha I literally have a cousin who called me one day and said, hey, I'm going to Argentina tomorrow. Don't tell our mums. Oh and gosh. that was it. And the the real truth of that is, it wasn't my cousin who said that, and it wasn't Argentina. And I've made both of those two things up because my parents don't know the true story. Wow. <laughs> and I'm still trying to cover for them. Wow. Because you respect so when the you're, membrane. So when, you're, so when your cousin went to Brazil, what happened? <laughs> You're not going to frost Nixon me, Babiglia. I don't... <laughs> this is not going to be a reverse frost Nixon situation. I know America has been very sore because David Frost managed to, managed to trip up your president. And I know that that's... And I am Britain's Nixon. <laughs> yeah. I just don't like this Argentina example. It's like, that's not real. Where did he really go? Where did it go, Nish? <laughs> that is so funny. The, but I, I love that that family, the sort of family tree concept, and 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 all that having to do with secrecy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like that idea that like each band of the family tree is like keeping secrets, and you're protecting people below you, but you're also yeah. protecting people above you. Well, it's like the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, of God. course, I can say that because I'm a man of the church, <laughs> and I, was I raised as raised as an altar boy, and I can laugh at it because I kind of look like Jesus. Stepping away from my conversation with Nish Kumar to send a shout out to Sam Adams. Sam Adams was, uh, I think, our very first sponsor on Working It Out about a year ago. Uh, I really, I love this company. It's my hometown beer, um, and they, they're doing a lot of great work. So many industries are devastated by COVID-19 closures, but perhaps none as severely as the restaurant industry. Um, I was doing this thing to help out the comedy club industry called Tip Your Weight Staff last year. Uh, Sam Adams teamed up with the nonprofit Greg Hill Foundation. They created the Restaurant Strong Fund to support restaurant workers. And uh, they launched this to support restaurant workers. As of April, they've raised more than $7 million and awarded 7,400 grants to restaurants and employees uh, to donate to the Restaurant Strong Fund in support of these restaurant industry workers who need your help. Visit SamuelAdams.com. And now, back to the show. So this is this is a joke I wrote uh, that's, uh, I don't enjoy footnotes when I'm reading a book. I was under the impression the font size was already small. <laughs> now you're going to force me to read something that's half the size of that on the bottom of the page? And then if I skip it, I always have this lingering thought in the back of my mind 10 pages later, like, I wonder what it said on page 25. 
I hope it didn't say, the point of the book is this. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is I get really excited when there's a picture in a book. It's like being handed a free pass to the next page. It's like a bouncer at a club saying, come on in. Page 53 is waiting for you in the back. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean about that. And I also feel the same about, um, <laughs> about things where like there's like a page between chapters. Oh, my gosh. Love, love the page between <laughs> chapters. Can't get enough of the page between chapters. I'd like to use my own pen and write in some notes about what I'm enjoying in the book. I have a few thoughts. <laughs> it's a weird it's a weird decision because yes. like you don't just like in a movie there isn't just a point where there's like just a black screen for like a minute. Yes. <laughs> it's really weird that they've decided to leave that. But I enjoy it because it gives me the sense like if if if, if it's page 53 and I'm reading page 52, and I know that there's a blank page coming up. I'm like, I'm reading two pages at once. Like, I'm like yes. oh a my speed gosh. reader. I'm burning through this thing. I'm a genius. I mean, it's almost like reading for me is what brunch is for Australia. <laughs> the, so, the, so the way that I'm trying to, just to put, contextualize the process, this is actually for the listeners too, because they know that I've been working on this show, is like, so the foot, so the joke about footnotes will probably, if it makes it into the show, yeah. will end up being in a section about how I was diagnosed with type two diabetes a few years ago, and then I and then I bought a book uh, called like Reversing Diabetes. Right, right, right. And then I'll probably go to the joke about footnotes, which is sort of wedging in a punchline in the middle of like a narrative structure. <laughs> So just to get back to sort of when you were asked, when we were talking earlier about like sort of how did the jokes become part of the thing? If that joke works in front of an audience, which I've never put it, I've never done it in front of an audience, I think that's where it'll go. At the moment, one of the things that I'm trying to do is in terms of like actually introducing myself, because like you don't want to, even when you're touring and you're performing to people who know, you don't want to go on and be like, hey guys, it's me again, your yeah. hero. And so yeah. I've been trying to like... <laughs> oh, that's a weird way to go on, I think. <laughs> it's me again, your hero. Well, you could go on and say, I, it's me again, the guy who's in the sidecar. <laughs> What's it called? The side the seat? sidekick soliloquy. It's the guy in the chair. <laughs> it's me again, the guy in the chair. I'm trying to not, think about... Not Batman, but the other guy in the chair. <laughs> Not even, not even Robin. Even Robin was talking yeah. about Prime. Alfred. <laughs> Alfred, yes. But like at the moment, I like my, I I have a sort of, in Britain, I am a quite divisive figure. And so I've got these like two quotes where somebody called me one of the most talented comedians, one of the young, most talented young comedians we have. And a, and then someone else called me a something like a leftist malcontent whose stock in trade is biting the hand that feeds him. And <laughs> those two men work for the same newspaper. Like I'm oh, wow. so divisive. And yes. that, I, what I want to say is my, a lot of comedians, because of the connection with jazz and Letty Bruce and bebop, people say that comedy is like jazz, which is very insulting. But my comedy is actually like jazz in that no, a lot of people fucking hate it. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and even some of the people who like it are only pretending to like it to appear intelligent at dinner parties. And, like, I'm trying to work out a way of, like, framing that so when you go in... So I can kind of go into it and say, I'm a, the, listen, the, a lot of the material is going to be about this slightly contentious 18 months that I've had um, in the UK. It's interesting because, like, it is so, it's such a divided time right now. And it is this thing where you go like, the people showing up to my show are generally on board for yeah. what I'm going to talk about. And and so then it's just like navigating within that. But I actually, I enjoy, like one of the things I really enjoy about your album is that you go like right before, right before that heckler story where you the the, the heckler says like, go home. You call out 
that this is going to, the, the final three tracks of this, the rest of yeah, the show yeah. is going to be about the leave vote yeah. and, and Brexit. And I think the audience enjoys that you hang a lantern on it. I think the yeah. audience knows they're in good hands because they otherwise they're going, is he really going to keep going on this for 10, 12 minutes? But if you tell <laughs> them in advance, they go, okay, this is what he told us we were going to do. It's like a lot of British comedians of my generation. There's a lot of stuff that I've absolutely stolen from Stuart Lee. And one of the things that Stuart Lee is amazing at doing is basically saying to people, okay, so I'm going to talk about this for about 10 minutes. Then yeah. there'll be a bit where I pretend that I've fallen, uh, that I'm angry with you. <laughs> and then there'll yes. be 20 minutes. That's and then it, really good. And then it's one 20 minute story about Jesus until the end. And like, yes. it, it, it's definitely like, it's like, it's fun to flag stuff up if you it's like fun to like telegraph surprise and like and uh, with the brexit thing particularly especially with that tour it was right after the vote so the vote happened in june and i was basically in edinburgh in august and then on the road september to december of 2016 and the recording is from the first week of december so it was like right in that kind of you know, not that not that things are less tense. If anything, they're even more tense now than they were. But, like, there was definitely a sense of, like, you probably should, like, flag up to the audience. If you're not on board now, there's a good chance you're not going to be on board by the end of this. Totally. <laughs> I have one last joke. Um, I just wrote this today, which is I was at a bakery in Brooklyn last year, and this guy says to the baker, uh, I'll have a loaf of rosemary ciabatta. And his eight-year-old son interrupts him and says, I don't want rosemary ciabatta. I want regular ciabatta. <laughs> and I wanted to tell this kid, you know, life is going to hand you all kinds of ciabatta. <laughs> but you got to hold your ground on non-rosemary ciabatta if that's what you want. That's my ciabatta speech. <laughs> you, it's, I mean, I guess it's the part of America that you came, that you are from, but it got quite Kennedy. It got, it yeah, got, yeah, yeah, yeah. ask yes. not what ciabatta you. <laughs> <laughs> ask not what ciabatta can do for you, but what can you can do for ciabatta. <laughs> So we're going to, uh, we do one last thing called working it out for a cause where I donate to a nonprofit that you think is doing a particularly good job. Well, I am very fond of the uh, people at Choose Love um, who do a lot of stuff in London. And I think they've started doing stuff in New York as well. And they're working uh, around the world to help with the effects of the refugee crisis. Um, and, you know, it's, I guess it's like it's so hard with everything that's going on at the moment, but it feels yes. so weird that there's also this like enormous humanitarian crisis kind yes. of building its way through the Middle East into Europe. And, you know, when you speak to and the people that work at the charity are absolutely incredible. And when you speak to them about what's going on and the people living in these huge refugee camps that are sort of, you know, being displaced by various regimes when you speak, when you listen to them talk about it, you partly part of you thinks, God, I don't know why I don't know why we're talking about anything else. But obviously, right. like with the pandemic, understandably, people have, you know, attention shifted away from it. But they've been doing incredible work helping refugees, helping get life saving equipment and food to them and also sort of helping them as they try and resettle them um, in the UK and the US. And they have like a pop up shop. Um, which they did in London for Christmas and they would have done again this year. And I think they had one in New York as well. But the the cool thing about that shop is that you can just go onto it and buy like supplies for the refugees, oh, need, tents and sleeping bags and stuff like that. So it's like, it, it's a really like brilliant, they're doing incredible work and it's a really like tangible effect that you can have for people's lives very quickly. That's awesome. Well, I will contribute to them and I will link to them in the show notes. And uh, thanks, Nish, for coming on. This is a blast. And I uh, I can't wait to visit you in London when things go back to normal. And, uh, and I can't wait for you to come to America and so we can hang out. I'm excited. Mike, we've got some absolutely delightful theatres. 
and they are just primed to have toys dropped in them or whatever. I guess like, I guess the that's ma- all my all my shows from the rest of the time have toys dropped in them. <laughs> or, I guess thematically, the bodies of middle-aged men, maybe for the next show. <laughs> that's my that's my brunch, Nish. Working it out because it's not done. Working it out because there's no So that's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out with Nish Kumar. You can follow him at Mr. Nish Kumar, Mr. Nish Kumar, because he's a very proper British gentleman. (laughs) On Instagram as well as Twitter, Mr. Nish Kumar. And again, uh, you got to listen to that comedy album. It's on all of the Apples and the Spotify's and all the places that one might listen to comedy albums. The producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Special thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. Special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. As always, a very special thanks to my wife, Jay Hopestein, the poet. Uh, uh, happy Mother's Day to her. Uh, we wrote that book together all about uh, parenting, uh, and her beautiful poetry is in that. The new one, it's in your local bookstore. And uh, support local bookstores, support local pizza, support local coffee. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who created my radio fort. And thanks most of all to you who listened. Tell your friends, tell your enemies. We're working it out. All right. I'll see you out there at the outdoor shows, and I'll see you here next time.